Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's Wednesday. You know what that means. We're in the studio. Who's this podcast? For my name is Nate. I hope everybody's doing well. As always, I know this one a storm has impacted a lot of people, I'm sure. So hopefully y'all are safe and all that stuff. I have movie-wise, some videos from movie-wise that I've been putting on for a long time. One in particular. Why every film today looks the same. This is a big one that he put out that I really love. Probably my favorite one from him. And I haven't covered it yet here. And I'm going to do that today. And then the second one in that list of ones that I just haven't covered in a while. At least I don't think I have. Is Unforgiven's Brilliant Use of Theme. Unforgiven, Dang Good Writing is on the title. So I'm going to cover that one as well. And these are both from movie-wise, as usual. Our favorite person to cover. But before that, I have a new book that I wanted to explain to y'all real quick. It's called The Big Picture, Who Killed Hollywood and Other Essays by William Goldman. This is my third William Goldman book. I didn't even know this book existed until like a few days ago. I thought I had the two big books that he made, just Adventures in a Screen Trade and then basically Adventures in a Screen Trade Part 2. But he has another one that says, From the Big Picture, Remember That Hollywood Makes No Sense. Remember, everybody powerful wants to stay powerful. Everyone else is out to kill. Remember that movies begin really as entertainment for illiterates. How far have we come this first century? Two-time Academy Award screenwriter William Goldman gives the big picture on Hollywood of screenwriting and the future of American cinema. Among the essays, Who Killed Hollywood, Disaster Movies, The Price is Never Right, Christmas in July, They Lost It at the Movies, Pushing the Envelope, Oscars Wild, Year of the Dog, and many more. Sharp, funny, wise essays about the movie business by someone who is in every sense an insider, but who has maintained the skepticism of an outsider. That's from New York Daily News. And then this guy really knows his stuff and writes like a dream, James Brady, advertising age. So basically just a book where William Goldman talks to his insiders at the studios. I think it's in the early 90s. I don't know how far it goes. It might stretch all the way to the late 90s. But every few months, he just goes and interviews these guys and talk about what's going on in Hollywood, how the movies are doing, how they feel about the movie industry. And it's fascinating so far just seeing that these guys, how bipolar they feel about the movie industry, where three months before it'll be like, oh, everything's dead. We don't know what to make. We don't know what these people want. Then three months later, like, everything's a hit. We're back. We're good. So it's very interesting to see. And it hasn't changed today. They still do that, you can tell, where they literally have no idea what you want. And uh, and then they try to blame you for it. That that was happening then and still happening now. And that was happening in his first book, which I think was written in 1981. So it just shows you that this stuff doesn't really change. But but I just I was excited about that book, The Big Picture. Read it. I think I got to like 100 and something already in like one night. So I just wanted to talk about that quickly. But now we get to movie-wise, why every film today looks the same. And I'll read you his description. It's a long one. So the video essay about the directing style that has dominated cinema since the 1970s intensified continuity. David Bordwell, our greatest movie theorist, created the term to define this visual fashion that replaced the classical form. This amazing book, the way Hollywood tells its story and style in modern movies, can tell you everything about the subject. And I have that book, by the way. Intensified continuity is marked by fast cuts over predominance of close shots 
Lens length extremes, though Bordeaux emphasizes the clear overuse of long lenses and constantly moving cameras. Most living filmmakers have these tendencies as the eternal part of their arsenal, from Michael Bay to Michael Mann, from the Wachowskis to Ridley Scott, from the Farley Brothers to Christopher Nolan. The style also brought, unfortunately, a preference for lazy blocking. Most films are blocked in the stand and deliver style, in which two actors stand or sit, sit and deliver mostly, still and talk without ever moving, cutting from one close-up to the next. The scene and the movie move at a visually inert pace. Walk and talk is an alternate choice, but the directors from the classical era had a richer quiver, which included the cross and the turnaway. By analyzing six scenes from five movies, we'll check the limitations of intensified continuity and the wider set of creative choices used by classical directors. A comparison between Peter Jackson's Council of Elrond and The Lord of the Rings the Fellowship of the Ring, and Robert Wise's final board meeting and executive suite will reveal how little value a beautiful, extravagant set has when the director is only interested in shooting quick faces with the long lenses. Then a comparison between Mia and Sebastian's fight in Damien Chazelle's La La Land and Margot and Bill's fight in Joseph L. Mankiewicz's All About Eve will show what a difference elaborate blocking can make when staging a scene. It's odd that Chazelle decided to be so static in such a dramatic moment when earlier, in a lighthearted scene, he perfectly blocked his actors the same way a classical filmmaker might have done. Finally, a scene from Robert Redford's Quiz Show will demonstrate how directors can use the fast and dramatic pace of intensified continuity while still keeping older techniques alive. It's a longer video, so I'm not going to waste any time. This is movie-wise why every film today looks the same. You can follow along if you want or just listen as I play it out loud, but I recommend watching it along with me. So five, four, three, two, one, now. Because I think that scene is so overrated. Because of this video in particular, and when I first saw it, I was like, you don't see them together ever. It's just over the shoulder, and they cut back and forth. And it was such a big build-up of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Heat. They haven't been in a movie together, and they're finally going to do it. They're going to have this scene in a diner, and then you never see them like in a shot together. It's just over-the-shoulder cutting and. Um, you know, it's just it's just unfortunate, but that's modern movies, and that's why I don't like a lot of this of the modern stuff. And when I say that, people, you know, well, people I talk to, they're like, yeah, you, you know, it's just hard for you to to find stuff that you like, or maybe it'd be too hard. And it's like, well, I know what they can be, and I just have a preference on what I like, and that's definitely not it. I'm gonna let him continue, but I just found it interesting. He started off with heat, and that's a go-to example of mine of like, this is awful. This was the, the worst way to shoot this scene. 
especially when you get these two guys together for the first time in movies, uh, on camera together, and you shoot it like this. Just awful on Michael Mann's part. But, you know, that's that's modern movies for you.
is intensified continually. It's a style that is in hands all the time. But if we always get as much visual gravitas as the most emotional moments of older movies, how can a film today make a moment stand out by using techniques that are even more intense, such as slow motion? I did need to go back because I did have to comment on this. Like, I love that that those guys from the seventies, and that's when all this stuff started, like you mentioned. But for one moment in a movie, they'll, like you said, abandon their long lens, get a wide angle lens, you know, that old trick, and and use it for this one shot where they never cut and then move throughout a building in these long tracking shots and think like, well, you know, that's you know. Like, oh, I might be paying homage to those guys. Like, they didn't use it for that. They never did anything like that. And that's as flamboyant as anything else that you use. And then they go right back to their long lenses and close-ups. I just, you know, I find it funny. It's like the tracking shot in Goodfellas people love. And I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. It's nowhere near as good as what they used to do, though. That's just my opinion, though. Thank <laughs> you. 
for tomorrow with Lalaland, another stubborn green system's use of sit and deliver. We start off with over-the-shoulder medium close-ups again and again for two minutes. Then the discussion ease up and we move to close-up after close-up after close-up for three minutes. Oscar winning the writing today. Now watch how a lot of sporo is staged in all of our evening. If you haven't seen All About Eve, go see it. But um, right now, if you can, it's great. But uh, yeah, I love La La Land. Um, it's a great movie. But yes, that dinner scene, it could have been so much more. And he shows that Damien Chazelle shows he has the ability to do so much more. But I feel like he mixes too many modern qualities of filmmaking into his clearly uh, older aesthetic. He's clearly somebody who studies and really appreciates the old classical style. But he throws in handheld and shot reverse shot and all that stuff into his movies. I think trying to appease this crowd today, but I think if you show them something that they haven't seen, and I will, I will um, be pretty confident in saying like ninety eight percent of the young crowd hasn't seen all about Eve or any of these movies. If you throw in some of those old techniques, it might awaken something in them, and they'll see something that they haven't seen before, and they might like it. But I do think a lot of these guys are scared, but. All about Eve is perfect. Just go watch that if you haven't seen it. So after for Oscar winning the writing today. Now watch how a lot of is staged in all about Eve. Betty Davis pretends she's uninterested. So she checks cigarette boxes all over the room. She moves around as they speak. Looks like I would have a very fancy party. Her boyfriend keeps turning towards her, but she turns to everything except him. Director Joseph L. Minkowitz has the actors do something David Portwell calls the cross. An actor is on one side of the frame, then they cross over to the other. If there are two actors on screen, it's an inversion of their positions. At first, Betty Davis is on the right, then on the left, then on the right again. The fight breaks out and she finally faces him. Now she moves to the left. They exchange lines from the other side of the room, then he moves closer. She tries to cross once again, but he won't allow it. She breaks out and she's on the right once more. He moves closer again, but she walks to the foreground and faces the camera. He steps closer, but she won't face him. Oscar will directly in the fitness. This here is a type of staging old-timey director's walk, having a character in the foreground facing the camera while another character looks at their back. It conveniently lets you see both their faces at once. I like to call it the turnaway. Oh, I don't know what's right any longer. Getting back to La La Land, find how indifferent is this Oscar-winning set. Not only are the actors sitting still from beginning to end, they don't interact with anything besides eating utensils at first. Then nothing wants close-ups take power. This scene could take place absolutely anywhere on Earth and it wouldn't make a difference. The library, a theme park, a desert island, a classroom, the Council of Eros, an orgy. It makes no difference. The scene from All About Eve could not take place anywhere else but that living room. They use every corner of the place, as many props as possible, and in other moments, even verticality is added with the small stairs that lead there. And the actors don't only act with their faces. You can actually see them using their legs and their hands. For Damien Chazelle, it wouldn't have made a difference if Emma Stone had been one of those Futurama heads. Ryan Gosling is trying 
have to remind us if he has links. But the camera is something just now. Close-ups can have too high a cost. Just to make it clear, I am not saying that this style is inherently good, while this one is inherently bad. Oh, yeah. I'm saying that this one is creative, difficult, dynamic, visually interesting, and beautiful, while this one is easy, lazy, boring, ugly, and poopy faced. There you go. sit on it but you will never not be able to to not see it once you um once you notice how many movies especially modern ones are just people standing and talking 
and they're just cutting back and forth. You rarely see them together on the shot. I left a comment on this video that actually has 311 likes and 13 um, comments underneath it. I said, I noticed this a long time ago in film. Once you do this, you'll never not notice it. Shaky Cam has to be my biggest pet peeve, so ugly. It's my favorite favorite video by you. Thank you so much for making it, MW. Took all my thoughts and made a video out of it. Bring back, bring back classical style filmmaking. That's my comment from like six months ago. It has over 300 likes, so I must not be alone in that sentiment, but it ain't enough personally, but we'll be right back. All right, back. Now we're on to the next one. And again, if I've done this already, I apologize, but I can't remember. And I don't think I have. I think it's one that I kept looking at, but I didn't want to do it because I haven't necessarily seen this movie, even though it feels like I've seen it. Uh, it's one of those where, like, you know everything that happens and everything about it, but you haven't sat down yourself to watch it. But um, but I want to watch it again. I've already watched it, but I want y'all to see it, so. This one is called Unforgiven's Brilliant Use of Theme. Same guy, movie-wise. And uh, we're going to dive into this one, but let me read the description. Clint Eastwood's Masterful Unforgiven, written by David Webb Peoples, explores the theme of violence and, to thanks, and thanks to its wholly unique cast of characters, manages to present the subject with the depth of a great novel, Find Out How. So again... Unforgiving brilliant use of theme by movie wise. Watch along with me if you can. Five, four, three, two, one, now. Talk about the greatest screenplay you ever written. Start so when people talk about the greatest screenplay you ever written, what usually comes up is an ambitious saga like the Godfather and Florence of Arabia. A time popping extravagance of like even name at any hall. An intriguing and twisty yard like Chinatown. Or a sophisticated dialogue heavy story like All About Eve and Network. What gets seldom mentioned is a straightforward question. Maybe people think these films are too simple, the conflict too clear cut, and the dialogue unimpressive, which Cassidy and the Sundance Kid aside. I am here to tell you that it is definitely not always the case. Case in point, Clint Eastwood's absolute masterpiece unforgiven. This film has one of the most unbelievably amazing screenplays ever written, and I will tell you why. Here goes major spoilers, so if you haven't watched the film, one of the greatest ever made, I advise you to go do it right now. You can pause the video and return in 130 minutes. No? Okay. Suit yourself. Here is Unforgiven in 120 seconds. It starts in the tiny Wyoming town of Big Whiskey in 1880. Delilah, a prostitute, laughs at a guy for having a tiny pecker. He gets her face. The guy and his buddy are arrested and the town sheriff Little Bill makes them pay a fine and go free. The hooker friends don't like it and raise a thousand dollar bounty for anyone who will kill those guys. A thousand dollars in 1880 would amount to the two twenty-seven thousand one hundred and sixteen dollars and seventeen cents. Not bad. A young man who boasts too much about being an awesome killer, the Schofield kid, finds retired outlaw William Matthews, famous as the most cold-blooded killer of his time. The kid asks him to join him in tracking down and killing those two guys. Money, who's now a poor big farmer, says he was reborn 
changes his mind and goes find his old partner from his outlaw days. Net, played by Morgan Freeman, who in 1992 already looked like he was today, they arrive to join the kids and kill the men. The bounty also attracted famed gunslinger English Bond, who goes to big whiskey with his biographer, W. Little Bill doesn't like gunslingers. English Bond takes an outside beating and leaks down. The biographer finds out his stories were full of hot air and he's not that much of a shooter. He decides to write about Little Bill instead. Our trio arrives in Big Whiskey. Ned and the kid go get some advancements in their payment, if you know what I mean. The money remains in the bar. Little Bill imagines he's after the bounty and beats him up like he did English Bond. The hookers nurse him back to health and he leaves with Ned and the kid to kill the first guy. Ned shoots his horse but can't bring himself to kill the man. Money kills the man. Ned leaves the bunch not wanting to have anything to do with killing. Also attracted famed gunslinger English Bond, who goes to pick whiskey with his biography, W.W. Little Bill doesn't like gunslingers. English Bond takes an outside beating and big stuff. The biographer finds out his stories were full of hot air and he's not that much of a shooter. He decides to write about Little Bill instead. Our trio arrives in big whiskey. Ned and the kid go get some advancements in their payment, if you know what I mean. And the money remains in the bar. Little Bill imagines his after the bounty and beats him up like he did English Bond. The hookers nurse him back to health and he leaves with Ned and the kid to kill the first guy. Ned shoots his horse but can't bring himself to kill the man. Money kills the man. Ned leaves the bunch not wanting to have anything to do with killing, but is captured by Little Bill and whips him to give information about his partners. Meanwhile, the kid kills the man who cut the boar while he's taking a dump. The guy who did the cutting was taking a dump. The kid confesses he had never killed anyone before and never wants to do it again. He and Money are given the money and find out Ned was tortured to death by Little Bill. Money takes up drinking again and sets out for revenge. He arrives alone in Big Whiskey and kills everyone who was not smart enough to run away. He kills Little Bill and leaves stuff. The end. That's Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven in 120 seconds. Did I manage 120 seconds? Nice. That's the plot. Simple enough, right? I had went back if it sounded like it was saying the same stuff. I'm at 320 now and I pause it. After he did the whole little synopsis thing. The screenplay by David Webb Peoples is that good because it shines in something very few scripts do or even attempt to do. It puts theme in every aspect. Specifically, the theme of Unforgiven is violence. How it affects the one who suffers, the one who inflicts it, the one who seeks it, the one who hears about it. It is a concise encyclopedia of violence and it speaks so much about it because of its six major characters who represent just about every possible outlook on the subject. These six characters can be split into two groups, those who can commit violence, William Money, Hero Bill, and English Bond, and those who cannot commit violence, Ned, the Kid, and W.W. the Writer. Let's start off with our main character, William Money, our hero. I killed one the children. Okay, it's complicated. He is a cynical rewrite of the type of character that made Clint Eastwood a star, the mysterious gunfire, faster than anyone on the throne. Get three cartons ready. My mistake, four cartons. But this time, he is regretful of his past. Actually, Eastwood intended Unforgiven to be his last question, so he bought the script in the 80s and waited 10 years to be the appropriate age to play the character. At the time, it wasn't even known as Unforgiven. It was going around Hollywood as the William Money Killings, or the Cut Horror Killings. Can you imagine that? There exists some alternate universe where you could have walked into a theater in 92 and said, Good evening, I'd like a ticket for the Cut Horror Killings, please. This moment in 
1992 goes to the cut or Achilles. Very mixed feelings about this. My chaotic side would love. My sensible one would not. Well, moving on. Money is the man who can kill, even though he knows it takes a toll on his conscience. Contrary to Little Bill and English Bob, stay tuned, he considers killing a bad thing. It is never justified. I don't deserve this. Reserves got nothing to do with it. But it's somehow unavoidable. Well, I guess they had it coming. We all had it coming. And he is the one who works the theme of the movie perfectly. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. Take away all he's got. Money spends 11 years in the boat of the book trying to convince himself and us that he is not such a man anymore. In the greatly influential screenwriting book Story by Robert McGee, you might remember him as the Brian Cox character in Adaptation. Then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. He talks about the law of diminishing returns. He talks about how each time you repeat the same emotion in a movie, the fact is diminished. The first depressing scene will make you cry, but another similarly depressing scene will leave you indifferent. A third one will make you laugh. The intended effect is reduced every time until it is inverted. The law of diminishing returns is true of everything in life except sex, which seems endlessly repeatable with the fact. No, I'm not using sex to make you pay attention. That's actually in the book. Bobby McKee knows his stuff. David Webb Peoples plays with the law of diminishing returns and unforgiven to show us how money's reformation from drunk killer to peaceful family man is a lie. My wife, she cured me of that. Cured me of drinking wickedness. Okay, he said it once. We believe him. I used to be able to cuss with my horse like this, but your mom, rest your soul, showed me the error of my ways. You already told us that. Are you just trying to convince us? I ain't like that no more. Well, you know, we're always the same, Ed. Claudia, she straightened me up. Cleared me of drinking whiskey and all. Just because we're going on this killing, that don't mean I'm going to go back to being the way I was. Come on, you are trying to convince yourself. Well, I ain't like that no more, Ed. I know crazy killing food. Oh, shut up. You're not fooling anyone anymore, you evil son of a bitch. <laughs> Let's now talk about one of the characters who can't kill. Matt Logan used to be a killer in the past, but he has abandoned that life, and unlike William Money, who will never go back to it. Well, I ain't like that no more. I ain't like that no more. Money says he's cured, but he won't shut up about their past. Matt doesn't even want to mention it. Matt is the most innocent major character in the film, and to show the unfairness of violence, the first of them who dies. The movie's villain, Little Bill, and like all great villains, he feels like the lead of his own story. Little Bill has a strong moral code. For him, violence is justifiable when that code is broken. Well, I ain't gonna hurt no woman. But I'm gonna hurt you. You're not gentle like before. What a scene! I have to go back real quick. Guess I need to watch this. Huh? Not gentle like 
And you notice, just to link it to the old video that we just watched, how it's in one shot. So you see both of their faces. You don't have to cut, you know, it's a two, but they're separated by the bars. It's all just telling you stuff without actually saying it. But you see both Gene and Gene Hackman and Morgan Freeman's face in the same shot. So you see the fear in one and the, you can say evil or disdain or whatever you want to say in the others, but them being side by side tell that entire story. You don't need cutting when you can frame a shot like this. And Clint Eastwood was one of the, he's one of those guys from that time. So, you know. And then at this shot that I just paused at at 8.55, little Bill goes to sit down and the writer's sitting there and his deputy's there. You see them all in the shot, but then you see all of the notice signs in the back and the uh, $1,000 reward signs and, and a map it looks like and how they're looking at them and what he just did, how they clearly don't agree with what he just did. He was, he was whipping Ned. It's that fear, but you see all of them and Gene sitting down sweaty after what he was just doing. And you say you see it all in one shot. You get a sense of the building that they're in in the room, how those guys feel. You don't need all those cuts to tell it. They cut right from the shot with him and Ned right to this three shot of them. And it tells the complete story. That's what they used to do as opposed to the intensified continuity that we see today. Now, English ball. As a son, is my failure as a father. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are, it is our choices. Oh, what is that kind of man doing playing such a violent role? Someone asked me, what, What's the difference between you saying Tom Cruise and people like that? Tom Cruise and Major Star, you and Major Star. I said, It's a great difference. It's like, see a photograph, go back to the old days, and you soon be going to one of my premieres. I had a bottle of rock in my hand. Tom Cruise got a bottle of angel gold. That's the difference. Nice. I tried cocaine. I tried heroin. I tried LSD. I did it all. God damn, the Bodor. English Paul is someone who doesn't mind killing, but unlike Little Bill, he has no moral code. He will kill anyone, anytime, for the pleasure of it. Why not shoot the Christmas? Might be that this dude here is English Bob. He's one working for the railroad shooting Chinaman. Might be he's waiting for some crazy cowboy to touch his pistol so he can shoot him down. It reminds me of this line from Pulp Fiction. In this scene, John Travolta is complaining about someone who hit his car. I wish I could have caught him doing it. I'd have given anything to catch that asshole doing it. And it'd have been worth him doing it, just so I could have caught him doing it. Did you notice that? Set the key in on his car would be worth it. If only he had caught the guy, he would pay the price of having his car ruined just as an excuse to murder a random individual. That's English Bob. English Bob's biographer, W.W., is the closest the film has to an audience surrogate. He is fascinated by violence, but he has never killed and will never kill, just like. Like a moviegoer, he loves tales of violence. Don't pretend you don't. He doesn't want to be part of 
carried his murderous ways. You can't help but pray for that confrontation. You put your money out, Missouri. Killed women and children. That's right. I've killed women and children. Killed just about everything that walks or crawls at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, Bill. What you did to that? Oh, chills. Literal chills. <laughs> it was number five. Number five killed my brother. Oh my god, I forgot about that part. <laughs> the final character is the kid. Only many kids. Easily explained, he's the virgin boy who won't stop bragging about how much he gets laid. Oh, uh, yes, the set. I do the sex all the time with several females. I thought maybe you were someone who come to kill me or something like that in the old days. I could have. Easy. Well, that's a lie. I'm a damn killer myself. Lie. He can't even physically be assured, since he is greatly short-sighted, which he tries to hide. When he finally kills someone, it's actually the one who might deserve it. But the victim is unarmed, in the most helpless position and it kills the kid on the inside. Dreamt of being is unarmed in the most helpless position possible. Spencer literally bounced, and it kills the kid on the inside. Dreamt of being like William Bunny, only to find out his conscience and his body won't let him. It doesn't seem real. But thanks to such disparate characters, Unforgiven presents its theme with the depth of a great novel. It might seem impossible to write with this level of detail, but just try it. Pick the theme of your story and, like a statue, sculpt it from every angle. I've just had the silliest idea, and I'm way too childish not to do it. Now I am about to ruin one of the most badass moments in the history of cinema. Okay, so that whole, that's a great video, by the way, that whole thing, the whole thing about theme, um, channeling your writing, especially in your characters and them all having something to do with the theme. When I saw this video, I hadn't, well, it might've been around the same time, have found this other guy whose whole thing is about letting your theme dictate your characters. So I'm going to find that video from, from the guy. It's going to be real quick and then we're going to wrap it up. But I thought it was very apropos that it made me think of it just now. And I want to make that link about theme uh, informing your character. So one more break and then we're going to do that. And then we're done. So I found the video from this uh, page that I'm pretty fond of called Local Script Man. That's L-O-C-A-L-S-C-R-I-P-T-M-A-N, local script, man. And it says, a different way to think about storytelling, local script, man, in three minutes. So it's a very short video. It's kind of like his overall point of his entire channel. He has a lot of great videos, though.
but uh, it'll say themes, bro, at the front. So his whole thing is about theme. Let's watch this really quick. Let's watch this really quick. And again, this is local script, man. A different way to think about storytelling in three minutes. Take a theme, any theme. What are all the potential perspectives one could have on that theme? This one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. Take each perspective and turn it into a character. Boom. Cast. Don't include characters who have nothing to say about your theme. It doesn't matter how fun they are or how attached you are to them. If they don't have unique perspectives on your theme, they will just take up space. What's that? You're starting with a character? Unacceptable. Just kidding, that's perfectly fine. Figure out what your character's core belief is. Do a Jeopardy on that belief to figure out what question it's the answer to, and then figure out all of the other potential answers to that question. But what if I'm starting with a plot idea? Same principle. What moral, emotional, or philosophical issue might the people in your plot argue about? The people on either side of that argument? Those are your characters. No matter what your starting point is, you end up with a cast of characters orbiting a theme. And since they have different perspectives on that theme, these characters are going to be in conflict with each other. And that conflict is what we'll call the plot. Now, is any old situation going to make your characters do a conflict? No. If a bunch of characters have different perspectives on the ethics of cloning, and the plot I give them is an Olympic bike race, their differences are not going to shine. But if I put them in a plot where a clone has escaped the clone lab, I repeat, a clone has escaped the clone They're going to be at each other's throats. This is the stage where you might feel inclined to designate protagonists and antagonists. Please don't. Try to see them all simply as characters. Writing gurus will drone on and on about what makes a good protagonist and what makes a good antagonist, as if there's some metatextual fairy dust you should be imbuing in each of these categories. But there isn't. All characters have their own justifications for why they believe what they believe. Maybe that justification comes from their backstory. Maybe it comes from their ongoing lived experience. But either way, it's critical that you figure out why each character occupies their initial orientation on the theme. Now, by saying initial, I'm implying that a character's perspective on the theme could shift. In fact, it could. This is called an arc. But bottom line, if you put a thematically diverse group of characters in a thematically relevant situation, you'll have a strong foundation for your story. And then you can add personality and flavor and style and aesthetics and vibes all on top of that sturdy thematic base. Any questions? Yeah, what if the audience doesn't like my writing? Then you should eat them. And who are you, exactly? I'm just some guy. I made all this shit up, just like Joseph Campbell made up The Hero's Journey, and Dan Harmon made up The Story Circle Thing, and Blake Snyder made up Cats. There's no such thing as a legitimate art education, and professional just means someone is willing to pay you. I don't claim to know the ins and outs of the industry. I just know which creative techniques work for me. If I have a breakthrough, I share it. My methodology is constantly expanding as I learn new things and meet new people. This video was an extremely general overview of my shtick. Since I've realized that I can't expect people to look through all of my old videos like chapters of the book, I've pinned this one to my profile so that my key points are accessible to new viewers. In my other videos, I go into depth about various narrative problems and how I solve them. Here are some of my videos. You can watch them if you want to, and you can also watch them if you don't want to, but that would be really weird. That's local script, man. A different way to think about storytelling, kind of his... Like I said, kind of his like introduction to his channel, if you will. Uh, uh, themes, bro, is kind of the title of that one, where he just basically outlines his entire theme of his entire theme. That theme informs character, and you you get a concrete theme of your writing, and then you build characters out with different uh, opinions or beliefs on that theme, 
and then the conflict writes itself. And now you can't help but to have conflict, which is essential in any kind of story. And that goes right with movie wise's video that we just watched, Unforgiven Brilliant Use of Theme. And it's just crazy that they both came to that same conclusion that because movie wise was saying that each character is basically made out of an opinion on the theme where money is a guy, you know, and that thing being violence and money, you know, is a guy who used to be violent, doesn't want to be anymore, but can if he has to. And uh, Ned is a guy who used to be violent and can anymore, no matter the circumstances. And it ends up killing him or getting him killed. And then a uh, little bill is a guy who has a code and will use violence when necessary. And is not, uh, you know, unable to really get his hands dirty when he thinks it's justified. In English, Bob is somebody who uses violence whenever, like he has no real qualms about it. And and the kid is somebody who wants to be violent. Then when he actually gets violent, it kind of ruins him. And he's like, I don't even know what to do with this anymore because his conscience was too big. But he wanted to seem violent. And then and the writer WW, uh, based on that theme of violence, is somebody who, you know, is kind of standing back from it. He watches it from afar. He kind of revels in it, but he never wants to participate in itself. But he likes to use it to his advantage. You know, it keeps him safe, so to speak. So it all encompasses that that theme of violence. That's what local script man was talking about, uh, your theme forming character. So I just thought that those two videos were very good to put together, and that came to me at the last second. Uh, but that's three videos, two for movie-wise, and I think that's the first local script man that we've done on the channel. So check out his page if you haven't uh, to this point because he has some good stuff. He's a he's a really good guy. I don't agree with everything that he puts out, but I think it's valuable. Like his video, um, un-mess up your screenplay in like five minutes, actual writing advice, write like a king who's on a budget. That's a great video. His um, how to become a writing you know, genius, five essential storytelling rules, then part two to that, five more essential storytelling rules. And not all of those are accurate, especially one in one in one stage. And, you know, people in his comments go at him for one of them. But it's OK. Uh, I, I get what he was trying to say. Uh, and those and then pacing isn't real. The illusion of bad pacing while your writing feels off the key to writing criminally good relationships. So local script, man, that's who you should check out, along with movie wise and all the other people that we've introduced on the channel. But that's it. We get out of here because it's already been uh, close to an hour. But thank you all for listening, as always. And again, be safe with all the weather stuff going on. And uh, continue to work towards your goals, as I try to say every week. And that's as. It's going to be messing up. Is it still going? I think it's still going. I'm not sure if it just went off or not. We're going to see, though. Um, why, why are you laughing? But, um, yeah, just be safe and uh, continue working on things that are important to you and all that good stuff. So, see you next time. As always. <laughs>